This is Thinking Freely with the ACLU of Maryland, the show that talks about what's happening politically in Maryland, from the courts to the streets. I'm your host, Amber Taylor. In 2018, police officers in Greensboro, Maryland, killed 19-year-old Anton Black, who called out for help while his mother watched him slowly be killed. Anton never got to continue his growing modeling career, to continue his college classes, or ever meet his baby daughter, Winter. Over the course of six minutes, Anton Black was held down by three white cops and a white man wearing a Confederate flag helmet. Anton's face was on the ground, struggling to breathe for six minutes until he died. Anton and the Black family became a part of a growing community of Black family members killed by police. Their reality is one of my greatest fears as a Black woman. The fear that one day I'll get the call that one of my loved ones has been killed by police, especially knowing that it is easier to hit the lottery than to get justice after police have killed your loved one. But Anton Black deserves justice. He and too many Black Marylanders need justice. Because the lengths that police are taking to cover up what really happened to Anton Black are disturbing, but not surprising. That's why community members and the Black family are organizing, lobbying, and litigating to seek justice and prevent this from ever happening again. To talk more about this, we will speak to Anton Black, the father of Anton Black, Richard Potter, an educator and member of the Coalition for Justice for Anton Black, and the president of the Talbot County branch of the NAACP, and Deborah Gion, legal director for the ACLU of Maryland, about the impact we hope their legal challenge will make as we reimagine policing in Maryland. Well, thank you everyone for being here today. Um, I know this is this is not the circumstances we would like to be all like getting together and talking talking to each other under, but um, really appreciate y'all taking the time to, to talk about Anton, talk about the case um, and why this is so important. Mr. Black, we wanted to start off the conversation with you. Can you talk to us a bit about who your son was? What are some things you loved about him? Yes. Uh, my son, he was uh, Anton Black. He's a little fella. He's 5'9 and, and a half, uh, 150 pounds. He had a big heart and he had big dreams. He uh, won the fastest boys in Maryland in, in track. He was a 100-yard dice champion. He was 200-yard dice champion. He, he was a high jump champion. He was Five nine, but he high jump six four. He came to me one day. He was working at Walmart. He was going to go to college. He he wanted to be a state trooper. He used to stay as a child over to the uh, chief of police house, and he because he was friends with his kids, and he liked he looked about like a role model, and he wanted to be, you know, he wanted to take up uh, criminal justice, which he did. But he was working at Walmart. And he wanted to work in the back and they wouldn't let him work in the back. They wanted him up front. So he came to me one day and said, dad said, uh, 
people tell me I should be a model. I have the face of a model or be on TV as an actor. Well, I said, well, go ahead on, Pretty Ricky. Well, his nickname was Pretty Ricky because he's a pretty boy. So go ahead on and try it. You know, you hear this going one ear and out the other. But he went to, uh, when he went to college, he studied acting and he took up modeling classes. And six months from the time that he said he wanted to do these things, I'm sitting in the audience in New York City, the Fashion Week on national TV. And I'm sitting in the audience with people that I see on TV all the time, stars. <laughs> and my son is modeling for these people and they're clapping for him. Of course, the women clapped a lot harder. And he just took it in stride. He was up there with um, people that had hit records backstage and you come out and did their song and stuff and cameras everywhere and TV cameras and he just took it in stride. After that, he modeled in DC on TV for designers in DC. He modeled again for Jason's Review in Manhattan in New York. And the designers out of California wanted him to, he didn't know it because they took his life. He didn't get a chance to do it. They wanted him to go to Milan, Italy and be in their fashion week. They were going to pay him his price. He had a price. And they were going to fly him over. And when he came back, of course, he, they were going to sponsor him. But he didn't get he didn't get to go to Italy because they took his life for walking down the street with his cousin in broad daylight in Greensboro. My son was an amazing young man. He had big dreams, a big heart. He, he did things that most people take a lifetime to do. He's 18. In six months' time, he's on national TV modeling after he wanted to try it. Do it. And they just everything from us when they did that to that child. He's my baby boy. He was my heart. But he, he just was something special. And they took that from us. They took his life for no reason. When he was going to college, he, he would go have casting calls. He hadn't been driving for a year, but he would drive to New York because I got taught of doing it. He'd go to New York for a casting call trial for a movie or a commercial. He'd go to Virginia. He landed a part in a TV, a movie, and we used to practice with him. And we saw the strip, and on his phone, he had the other TV personalities that was going to be with him in the movie. He didn't get the, he got the part, but he didn't get to be in the movie because they took his life, but he would have. And I used to say, you know, he he's from Chestertown, but he was over there visiting his mother from Greensboro. And you know, I used to tell people, I said, you know, this boy was something special. He could have put Greensboro on the map. He was that good. He had that that he had the heart and the drive to do something. He said he's going to do it. He's going to do it. You know, but Greensboro, he could have put him on the map, but they put him in his grave. What a, a tragedy. What what injustice. Five men beating up on a little little 150-pound teenage boy, a child. He's my child. He wasn't even yet a man. They took his life. It's just not right. It it breaks my heart. I can't think of it. If I do, I break out crying. <sighs>
it has devastated the whole family, put me in bad health. And it's just a terrible thing. I would like to see some kind of justice for this. It's not right what happened to that boy. No, absolutely. He he should be still alive today. Um, And thank you for, for sharing that. Thank you. Richard, I, I, wanted, I wanted you to help us paint the picture of like what life was like for Black people in, in Greensboro and also what the relationships were like between Black people and the police, um, particularly in, in 2018 when this happened. From hearing, you know, members of the Greensboro community, there was a shift that took place with the chief of police. They had one chief of police who was very much community oriented, community friendly. Um, and he was doing things to try to build authentic relationships with the younger community, uh, younger members of the community. And then there was something that transpired where he ended up leaving and they brought in the chief of police, Mike Petio. And they noticed that when this chief of police came on, came in, it became more militant as it was described to me. There was SWAT gear, people, the police officers looked like they were doing, were off to war um, with their SWAT gear and things of that nature. So I think that's where things started to have its divide. Um, And then, you know, when all of this happened in 2018 uh, with the death of Anton, there was a lot of unrest. Um, The family wasn't getting answers that they should have gotten. It was, you know, we were waiting for the medical examiner's report. Um, the attorney, the um, state's attorney for Caroline County wasn't, you know, giving information to the family and the family was left with no answers. Um, and the community was left with no answers. The community didn't know what happened. They just knew that this young African-American male had died in or w- was killed in, in police custody. Um, so then the community started asking questions and then that's how I got involved and started working, and then that's when we built the coalition. And also, Richard, to my understanding, you know, there were some like protests, or people, you know, also knew like of one of the officers who came from Delaware, Officer Webster, um, when he came to Greensboro. Can you talk to us about what were some of the community's concerns? The, the community was very vocal. The individuals of color in Greensboro is very—it's a small number, but they were very vocal, um, as well as the NAACP for Caroline County was vocal to, to say that we did not want Webster a part of the community based upon him making national news in Dover, Delaware, kicking the African-American male in the face while he was face down and handcuffed. Um, so when that came out and they started making connections, they started to protest his hiring. Um, there was many community meetings where they met with Jeanette Delude, who was the town manager, They met with Michael Petio, who was the chief of police, and they said that they didn't want him here. But yet again, Michael Petio and Jeanette DeLude agreed to his hiring. Matter of fact, I think it's somewhere on record um, where Michael Petio stated that uh, Webster was the best qualified candidate uh, out of all the other candidates. And they hired him anyway. They hired him uh, after the community voiced their response to him uh, creating that act uh, in Dover, Delaware, and you know they ignored what the community had to say. 
Mr. Black, can you actually can you talk to us a bit about like, do you know if um Anton knew of of Officer Webster, if, if like he knew of some of the officers in, in that area? He, well, he he Webster had stopped him and he told his mother that he was nasty and he was a, he was afraid of him, like most black people. He was very nasty to the black people over there. This white lady came to one of our meetings and she had grandkids and it was three of them, three boys. The oldest boy was pure white. His brothers were mixed. And Webster stopped them because they was walking on the grass and told the two little boys, which were black, that he was, he'd catch them on the grass again. He was going to take him to a juvenile hall. The, white, the, the pure white one, he just winked at him and went about his business. Well, the boy came home and told his grandmother, because those boys were his brothers. And the lady came and told about how prejudiced this guy was, how he had treated them two little black boys and winked and smiled at the pure white one. So he was a nasty guy. He was nasty. Anton was afraid of him. Two weeks before they killed my child, and it was on um, video and the internet, they, he, they beat up him and another cop beat this light-skinned black child. He's 16 years old, heavy set. They beat him to a pulp. He's laying on the ground with his hands out, and they on their knees beating him and stomping on him. That's Webster. That happened in Greensboro. I don't know if people knew that, that saw it. About a block from where they beat up, beat my child. They beat that boy unconscious. And, well, I don't know if it's true, but somebody said that they called that... Uh, not a party. What they say they call that? A show. Putting on a show. Matter of fact, he said the same thing. Webster said the same thing after they killed my child. The boy laying on that ambulance. He was heard to have said uh, that was a real good show. Now, I don't know why him and this other cop would still be on the force after beating that other boy, 16 years old, black. But they were. Just like they kept him on after they killed my child. So yeah, everybody was afraid of him. A lot of he had, there's a lot of people, black people, that didn't want no dealing with him. Matter of fact, he wasn't even supposed to be on the force. Something happened with uh, Petio, forged some papers or something, because he wasn't supposed to be on the force. Wait a minute, I think Petio is on probation for for harming him. He he harmed him illegally or he lied or something. So Mr. Black is right. Um, after much of an, the investigation done, there was a complaint filed with the Maryland State Training and Commission uh, to look into the application for certification for Officer Tom Webster. What came out of that investigation was that Officer Michael Pettio, who was the chief of police, uh, did not report all the use of forces uh, from Delaware, and he had knowledge of it prior to certifying that application. So then charges were brought forth by the AG's office um, where Michael Petio did plead guilty. I wanna say in 2020, uh, he pled guilty for malfeasance uh, and misconduct in office where they did place him on probation. It shocks and doesn't surprise me at the same time, like the amount of um, foolishness for lack of a better word, police have done and also like the track record they have in terms of police abuse and how that just gets wiped away. Um, Absolutely, you, you know, and you look at, you know, Anton's law that is requiring more transparency 
and you have the police unions saying, no, 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 we don't want this to take place. But then you can bring in faulty officers and hide behind not, you know, not being forthright in the application for certification of an officer. And then we're allowing bad officers to get through the through the pipeline process that could possibly yield things that we're experiencing right now. So again, you know, we, we have to do something to better fix the process and the pipeline so that we are one, holding police officers accountable, two, there's transparency to the communities in which they serve uh, so that we don't run into issues like this. Absolutely. And Debbie, um, I wanted to um, ask, you, ask you to just walk us through a bit of what happened on the tragic date of September 15, 2018, when we killed Anton Black. Well, it, um, it started innocently enough. Anton and his cousin were walking around the town of Greensboro, visiting with friends and at the park, just hanging out like kids do. And at one point, Anton was roughhousing with the cousin and um, a passerby saw them and um, thought it was more serious than it was and um, called the police and um, the call came to Officer Webster, who as everybody has um, talked about, was sort of new to the town, came from a very controversial background where he had been engaged in a series of incidents of misconduct in, in Delaware and had been hired by the town of Greensboro. Despite that, maybe in part because uh, the police chief Pedio said that he was somebody who wasn't afraid to do his job as he viewed the job of law enforcement to be. Um, so Officer Webster responded to this call and, um, and then it very quickly um, turned into some, from something very minor into something very serious. After he, um, stopped the boys, you know, they were walking on the street, he confronted them um, and talked to them briefly. There was this question about, he was asking about what their relationship was. Um, and, you know, I think everybody knows that they were, they were like brothers, even if they weren't technically brothers and, and um, but, for whatever reason, that was used as a um, as a cause for concern by Officer Webster, and he um, he tried to detain Anton, but there wasn't any reason for him to be detained because he answered the question about being whether he was the boy's brother or not. <laughs> um, so Anton, um, you know, very politely was talking to the officer, but then turned and jogged away. Um, and um, rather than um, trying to de-escalate the situation, I mean, the, the other kid was there and had crossed the street. He wasn't in any danger. Um, he, if that has, had been his concern, um, he started to chase Anton and called in there was a, um, a man across the street, just a random person um, who was on a motorcycle, um, not a police officer, had a um, 
hump motorcycle helmet emblazoned with a Confederate flag. Um, and he, Webster said, hang with me in like motion for him to help, even though, um, you know, he had, he was just a, he was just a random person on the street. And, and then there was another uh, couple of off duty police officers who were in the vicinity. The police chief from one of the neighboring towns was happened to be driving through the town. There was a, um, another officer from a different department who lived in Greensboro, who was out in his yard. Webster, you know, collected it, tried to get everybody to join in the, the chase of Anton and, um, <clears throat> Anton became very scared. None of these people, except for Webster, nobody was in a, in a police uniform. Um, it seemed, and they were all white. Um, they, they were chasing him. He ran to his mother's house. Um, he um, I was, I think, very frightened and went into a car that was in the, in the drive there, um, the, a family car, and, and you know, was crunching down, locked the doors to try to, um, shelter himself from them. And um, Officer Webster charged in and without any kind of a hesitation or warning, he bashed in the window, the driver's side window of this, of this car with his police baton and then took his taser and tased Anton, who tried to escape um, out the other side of the, of the car and um, and was tackled by um, the police chief from Ridgely, Manos, Gary Manos, and um, and then you know the the group of of these officers and the motor motorcyclist um, just, just you know started to struggle with Anton to to pull him down to push him down. Um, they were you know piling on him. Um, holding it, ultimately they got him to the position where he was being held with all of their collective weight on top of him face down on the rampway to his, to his mom's house. And um, they uh, got handcuffs. They, you know, one of the, they, by this time other people had gathered too. Some other, um, other police of, Officials had been hurt, had heard on the radio. And so there was sort of a collection of more people coming as this incident unfolded. And um, somebody went to look for handcuffs. They got handcuffs, brought them to the um, to them, and they they struggled to put the handcuffs on. They got the handcuffs on. You know, initially I think Anton was was really trying to trying to just struggle to like get so that he could be in a position. He's had all these people on top of him so that he could breathe. Um, and over time, as they continued this, um, you know, the piling on and the and the trying to, you know, secure him, um, he struggled less and less. Um, they got at some point got also got leg shackles because they said he was he was you know his legs were moving and um, it just went on and on and on this way with them all on top of him face down. And you know, over time, he he struggled less and less. He lost consciousness, and he died. From the time that they first got him down until he was, you know, he he stopped struggling. And they, somebody eventually said, like, you know, let's 
let's turn him over so he can breathe, even though he was at that point motionless. Um, it was it was over six minutes of of these officers all piled on him and um, and holding him down. The following part of this podcast contains audio from the police body camera footage that captured the police killing of Anton Black. Listener discretion is advised. You can fast forward to the 27 minute mark if you do not wish to hear this. Don't let the dog Come to the door. Come to the door. Buddy, jump in here. Thank you. You were always there. That was really my mom. I grabbed his leg. No. Pull it out from under him. He's having a problem. Um, shackles in the trunk of the car. I love you. Please. Please. He's okay. He's okay. He's sent one. He's being restrained at this time. No. He's he's definitely. He yeah. He's definitely. He's not with us right now. So he's going to be okay. We're going to get him some help. All right. All right. So. Get that arm out from under him. Drag it out. Thank you, Debbie, for um, painting that very vivid um, and tragic picture. Um, and I'm, I'm sure, like as, as you know, it's like this. This is similar has some similarities to what happened over the summer of 2020 with the death of George Floyd. In your knowledge of police killings as well, like is this type of of killing is, that, is this common? Is this is this becoming more of like a pattern that we're seeing? There, there are. Um... You know, there are, unfortunately, there are very many police killings of, of Black people that occur in different ways, including shooting deaths um, are, is, is a, big, a big cause. But um, this, this type of incident that um, where somebody is choked or, you know, um, it's called positional asphyxiation, where they are, you know, held down and into a position where they can't breathe. Um, or they sometimes they they involve as this incident did where um, the his Anton's legs were kind of bent up as they were trying to secure him they bent his legs up that actually makes it it's similar to what is called hog tying where um, it makes it even harder to breathe and so um, these you know there there are um, unfortunately you know like other lots of other examples that we see and like in in terms of the litigation that we're bringing where we're looking at other cases that have occurred in the past to say like police should have known better police should have known that holding somebody face down for this prolonged period of time with that weight on top of him um 
could kill him. Um, when we know that because there have been these past cases where the same thing has happened and um, and there's been litigation over the course of, you know, decades. Thank you. Thank you for that context. My next question for you, Mr. Black, is what did it feel like to learn that your, that your son, your baby boy, as you said, had been killed by the police in this way? Well, it's devastating. It, it hurts every day. It's like a nightmare that you never wake up from. I made a mistake and saw him, saw a video of him. And he, after they had beat him and beat him with the sticks and the fists, he made it to his mother's door. And they jumped on him up there. And I heard him beg for his life. It's like he knew they was going to kill him. They never moved off of him after they had him handcuffed. They stayed on him. So it breaks my heart to, to see it. I can't watch it. I shouldn't have watched that because I hear him in my sleep. It's just so such a tragedy. There, there was, there, I still don't know the why of it. So I just, I, I know it doesn't do any good, but to me, they murdered him. There's got to be a reason for it. Because they didn't care nothing about that black child. They just beat up a 16-year-old. So. That's all I have to say about that. And also, Mr. Black, can you talk to us about how how this has impacted you, your family? Well, it's destroyed our family. Everybody's hurt. Like I said, that was my baby. He's my baby boy, but he was everybody's little brother, little cousin, little little you know, young uncle. They they destroyed my health. I've been sick ever since. I can't sleep. Like I said, every time I go to sleep, I hear my child's voice. So there's a lot of things that I, I mean, I can't get it out of my mind. I think about it all the time, and I don't want to. I cry. You know, my blood pressure goes crazy. It's just, it's devastating to me, to his mother, to his sisters, but the whole family. You know? Why him? I mean, he did more things at 18 than most people do in their whole life. And like I said, I, it, it keeps me awake. I can't sleep. I, I just, it just, it's devastating. It's a nightmare. And he was a, a good kid. He, 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 you know, he had good, uh, good manners and good everything. I mean, we were in Chestertown at the red light, this old white guy. His car broke down, people blowing a horn and stuff. I, could, I before I can stop my son and ran out there, told him to get in the car, pushed him through the light. That's the kind of kid he was. You know, <laughs> the guy offered him some money. He just put his hand up and said, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, that's just how he was. Why would they do this to this child? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, it's, it's hurting to talk about it, and I'll break up and cry in a minute, and I don't want to do that. The video went off with them beating him. He's just crying. They just, and they're having a ball. They're having a party. It's like they're putting on a show. That's what they call it. And they should never even been on the street because was one of them. Two weeks later, they do the same thing to my child. And they were beating the boy to the body so it didn't show in the face. And my son, his body, he's, he's a light-skinned, pretty-skinned boy. They beat him black. I did see that with his clothes off, what they did to him. They beat him black. They beat him to his body. And everybody, whether it was the president, 
He, he just hated black people. He was a bigot. I mean, who, who, what kind of coward kicks a man when he's down in handcuffs and kicks his head like it's a football? That's what Webster did. And he had 30 or 40 confirmed abuse charges. That's why they fired him. But this he lied and got him hard. He shouldn't have never even been a cop. He shouldn't have been on the force. He wasn't supposed to be on the force. My son would still be alive. It wasn't for him. Richard, um, can you talk to us about what was some of the community's response um, over the death of, of Anton Black? So I, I will tell you that we, you know, early on, we canvassed the community uh, to get their involvement in it. Some of the, of the community members did not want to get involved because they were scared. Other community members came out publicly stating that it was a shame, it shouldn't have happened, um, that these police officers in Greensboro terrorized local children of the community. Um, and some, you know, stated that they would support us to no wit's end. They would go with us to, to, to speak out on the injustice at the local town hall meetings. Um, so there was mixed reviews from different people um, in the community, but we took what we got and we worked with what we had and we made sure that we were at every town hall meeting asking for Officer Webster, one, to be placed on administrative leave um, to get him off of the streets while the investigation was pending by the Maryland State Police, which was a fight in itself. Um, and, you know, we just constantly kept showing up, protesting at their meetings. Um, and then eventually they gave into our request um, to put him on administrative leave and to um, start looking at how they could incorporate diversity and inclusion training into their police department. We also worked with um, Dr. Bernard Demchuk, who had done some, facilitated some of this work over on the Western shore. And he also offered his services to the local government at the time, as well as the police, um, the chief of police at the time. I don't think they have made any headway in that area yet. Um, from my understanding after Webster, I'm sorry, after Petio um, resigned from his position, they seated a new chief of police, which I have heard most recently, he has now resigned from that position as well. So I don't know where they are with that. That's something that we have to follow up on. Um, but we as a coalition, you know, wanted to make sure that this situation did not happen any other place on the Eastern Shore. Uh, so we've been working with other advocates across, you know, on the Eastern Shore to make sure that they know their police force, that they're listening to their commu marginalized community uh, when they have issues with policing and things of that nature, and just trying to make sure that, you know, though this happened in small Greensboro, we're trying to make sure that this doesn't happen anywhere else on the Eastern Shore. No, absolutely. Um, it, it is, <laughs> it's sort of like a wildfire, like you're trying, trying to put it out, unfortunately. Um, but Debbie, I also wanted to ask you about um, how the police try to like spin spin the facts in their favor. How did they try to paint themselves, particularly in the media, about um, what happened that may or may not be accurate? Well, in this case, um, at the outset of this incident, um, which as as we've discussed, had 
sort of curious beginnings. Um, the police were claiming that um, this was not, a, they weren't investigating a crime. They were, um, they were considering this a medical emergency. They thought Anton was in some, um, was experiencing some mental distress. And they told his mom, um, even as they were struggling with him on the porch, that, that <clears throat> they were just trying to get help for, for Anton. And that it was a medical emergency, not a crime. Um, but once um, they realized, you know, the, the harm that they, the grievous harm that they had caused, um, they they really changed the way they, they they changed their tune entirely. The way they talked about it, um, they they began claiming that even just as they were um, at the at the scene um, in conversation with one one another, and much of this is recorded on the um, the body camera. Um, they talked about how, you know, he had been exhibiting superhuman strength, um, and you know that they thought he was on some kind of drugs laced with, you know, that that gave him this laced with something that gave him this superhuman strength that would justify the use of force that they had had to exert. Um, they even after um, Anton was taken by the ambulance to the hospital, um, they were, they stayed there at the scene and they met together and they um, talked together, you know, about what, what their story was and, and how they, um, they were going to portray the situation and this narrative about um, Anton being on drugs was one that um, seems to have come out of that and um, there were there were a lot of there was a lot of talk in the in the immediate aftermath of Anton's death about um, him being on some kind of drugs. But later, when the autopsy report came out, it showed that there were no drugs. Um, and you know the the story that the police give to the to the media does have lasting um, ramifications for the way the public understands what happened. And, um, and in this instance, there, as Richard mentioned, there was this long lapse in time between when Anton was killed and when public attention really began to focus on it. And throughout that, it was, his death occurred in mid-September, 2018. It wasn't really until the coalition, Richard and the coalition started to, um, you know, demand that the family be supported and that there be attention paid to this to this death, that um, the other side of the story started to be heard, and that there was a call for release of information from all the officials who had, throughout this period, had had the body camera footage of the entire incident, which had been kept secret. Um, and the autopsy, even though the autopsy was conducted in September, it still in December had not been released. And so um, the the side of the story that that is at issue now in the litigation um, wasn't being told at all during that during that time period. So the police version of events was the one that prevailed until then. And Debbie, I, I want to 
to sort of shift gears a bit and, and ask you about the medical examiner um, more specifically. And can you, as a, just a baseline, can you talk about what the relationship, the professional relationship between the police and the medical examiner's office is? They work hand in hand. Um, the police, um, police are present during an autopsy. Um, and in, in this case, the, the police officers from the Maryland State Police were present for Anton's autopsy, um, were officers who had been talking to the, the officers at the scene who had been involved in the killing. Um, and so the version of, um, of events that they brought into the autopsy that they then share with the medical examiner, um, you know, <laughs> is that same police version of events. Um, they, uh, the medical examiner has access to police reports um, and, and the materials that the that law enforcement officials provide, but doesn't um, conduct an interview with the family members who were present um, at the time. Um, so it's this very stilted version of events. And our, our sense having, you know, looked at, um, a number of cases involving the Maryland medical examiner is that in situations like this one where um, there is, it's not like a shooting death where the, the cause of death is, you know, indisputably a gunshot wound. The medical examiner um, treats the, the death differently than if the same type of incident occurred among private citizens. Where police are involved, um, the, the results seem different than they would. Like, whereas here, the medical examiner ruled that um, the death was of natural causes and um, re resulted from Anton having bipolar disorder or a latent heart condition it doesn't say at all that um, you know the fact that you know hundreds of pounds of police force was weighed on him and um, that the struggle ensued that he was tased that uh, none of that is mentioned as being a cause of the death. Um, it instead it's depicted as natural causes and you know bipolar disorder. It's, it's hard to conceive that if the same thing had happened with private citizens, that that would be what the medical examiner would say. That, you know, that that wouldn't be what the police would say when they, when they went in to talk to the medical examiner. They wouldn't say, you know, oh, this must have been of natural causes. They would say that the force used by one private citizen against another caused the death. It just, it just doesn't make sense to say that um, that had nothing to do with it. And so um, the fact that the that in in more than one instance um, these kinds of um, outcomes have been reported in cases where police killings in this um, in this type of circumstance with somebody being you know struggling with police and and not and and dying as a result through asphyxiation. Um, the medical examiner has reported it's accidental or it's you know natural instead of that it, it is a homicide. 
And if he can, you know, in, in the research that we've been doing around the case, do you think that this type of behavior where the medical examiners are, if not covering up, then they're definitely like providing a certain certain circumstances that they that they wouldn't provide you know, um, for residents that they would provide for the police? Do you think that this is a common thing, uh, particularly in, in cases where the police have killed somebody? Well, I I mean it it is as I say something that has happened. It seems to have happened repeatedly, and it has real consequences. You know, when the medical examiner reports in the autopsy that this is a death of natural causes and basically vindicates the officers um, and doesn't doesn't say you know claims that they had nothing to do with the with causing the death, that has consequences. The um, the state's attorney for Caroline County then says you know pointing to this report says there's no way we can prosecute these officers. The medical examiner says it was a death of natural causes. Um, the um, police departments say, you know, we can't discipline our police chief for engaging in this conduct. The medical examiner has said he had, he had nothing to do with causing the death. It was just a death of natural causes. So, um, and then it, it, it puts more, I mean, as if the family of a police killing victim um, doesn't have enough, you know, trauma. It it shifts all responsibility for trying to fight back and to and to seek accountability on the family. The family has to go find independent experts to counteract what the medical examiner has said that this was a this was a death of natural causes. You know, and and that that is is a is a huge financial tax on on what the family the family's right to seek justice and to seek accountability from the police and so that's one of the that's one of the reasons that we have identified the you know the acts of the medical examiner as really contributing to this problem in a significant way covering for the you know the role of the police in the in the um in the death and um, making it even harder for the family to, to seek justice. I wanted to jump in on what Debbie was talking about because she's so right on with that. When we as the coalition and the family tried to go to Ridgely to get Manos placed on administrative leave, um, they clearly told us that they weren't going to discipline him because the medical examiner's report stated that he died of natural causes. So it left us in a state of, you know, well, what is it? What else can we do when we have these police departments that are going to fall under this faulty autopsy report in which we knew was inaccurate? I mean, you can look at the body cam footage and you can see Manos position his body on top of Anton's body to the point where Anton is no longer visible. And yet you're going to say that that he died of natural causes. Um, so, you know, it, it does, it, it put us in a very awkward situation where the fight kind of had to diminish because we knew all of them were going to hide behind this faulty autopsy report. And then can either of you just describe like how expensive or how difficult it is to get an independent autopsy to refute um, what the medical, what the medical examiner has put out? It's it's extraordinarily expensive, um, you know. Here, the um, 
because of the time lapse, um, there can't, it, it would, it's prohibitively expensive to get a, an independent autopsy. It would, the body would have to be exhumed. It would, it would just be, um, it would just be too costly. But the, um, even just having an expert, retaining expert witnesses, you know, medical witnesses, um, use of force witnesses to counteract the, um, the official version of events that has now been, you know, like written into, written into the record by these various police and medical examiner officials um, is, is just, it, 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 you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars that it costs to, to retain these experts to counteract the, um, the, the official version of events. And, um, you know, for many people, that's just, it's just not possible. Um, and he, you know, you, it's very difficult to go into court and challenge the, um, challenge the official version, the official explanation for what happened, unless you have already gotten that expert opinion that you know you have to be able to counteract, um, counteract the government. And so um, it means that sometimes people just cannot, cannot bring lawsuits um, because they, they can't, they don't have the resources and they can't find lawyers who are willing to pay those costs up front. So um, it, it is a very significant problem that I think, you know, our, our, one of our goals here is to, is to try to disentangle, to make the medical examiner's office more independent when it comes to these types of, of deaths, that it's not, um, you know, part and parcel of law enforcement. It's not, um, it's not relying on um, police explanations um, to the, um, to the detriment of, of independence and, and um, sort of a fair analysis of the facts. Actually, Richard, I wanted to ask you, um, in line of like what, what some of the goals are for this case, like what do you and the Coalition for Anton Black, um, what do y'all want to be different as a result of this case and the advocacy that has been spurred around it? So yeah, I, you know, one of the things that we're definitely wanting is police reform. We're wanting it where, you know, the community can feel safe, mainly the Black community uh, can feel safe when interacting with law enforcement, again, you know, you think of police officers, or I did growing up as a child, is that police officers are there to protect and serve members of the community, not kill us. But again, none of that can take place until one, we recognize that there's been some wrongdoing, and we need to reconcile that and make it right. And then from that, from making it right, we can move into a reconciliation process where we can start the, the healing process. So that that is what we're looking to, you know, help the community of Greensboro out with is being able to start to put the pieces back together. But that can't start until the local officials and Greensboro recognize the injustice that was done and we bring about justice in, in, a, in a fair and equitable manner for the Black family so that we can move through those steps to ultimately heal and be a better community um, to include police, the police departments in that picture as well. So can 
you talk to us about what you hope will be different as a result of this case and what do you hope will be different as a result also of you know people organizing and protesting over police killings in Maryland justice for my son they just lied on him and they put it out on TV and newspapers and everything else okay I want them to know they were somebody so yeah I'm devastated now we've always been devastated they destroyed my life, messed our whole family up. Everybody's still hurting. It's like it just happened to us. It's that you woke up and you can't, you know, a nightmare that you can't wake up from. It's just, it's just so devastating. I hope something happens about it. I hope there's some justice for Anton Black. He didn't deserve what happened, and they shouldn't have did it. They, 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 who is so cruel that they're going to do that to a teenage boy and get away with it? So, yeah, I want some justice. What right did they have to chase him, beat him, and kill him? To take his very life? It's a hurting thing. It's not right. And something needs to be done about it. Okay. All right. <laughs> Mr. Black, I deeply appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I I can't imagine what you're going yeah. through, but you your strength in all this is remarkable. We're going we're going through hell. They took our whole life and turned it upside down. You know, they've taken the smile from everybody. They took they just took the sun right out of the sky for us. And Debbie, I wanted to ask you the same question from the ACLU's perspective. What do we hope to get out of this case and what and also what do we hope that will change between both what the medical examiner does and of course what the police do as well well one goal i think is to um to recognize that um police are not always the answer you know here um the the police were claiming that there was a medical emergency that they needed to address and yet the the approach that they took was a was an approach as if they were confronting a you know a horrible crime um, that you know and and so if in fact there's a medical emergency why are we calling the police why aren't we calling why isn't there another resource and so I think one goal that um, we may seek here is to divert resources from police you know, crime stopping forces into force, you know, like resources to help people when they, when they confront um, difficulties in their lives. And, and I think, you know, if you look at police killings, um, many, many of these incidents involve people who are in distress for one reason or another. And that, and, and the police come to, you know, help that's the that's their stated goal to help in in these incidents and yet end up killing the person that they were trying to help and so it seems clear that um we need we need a resource other than police to call in those circumstances and um and i think there is a movement you know throughout the country now to 
to try to develop that type of resource, that um, something different than um, law enforcement is needed in those circumstances. And, and so that's one goal that we may seek um, here. I think also, as, as I've said, the, you know, some greater independence for the Office of the Medical Examiner where they're not um, collaborating so much with, with law enforcement in, in the, um, and have greater ability to um, make decisions and, and issue findings that are independent. I was wondering if maybe, um, Richard, if you wanted to say anything about how, how white all the shore law enforcement is and how, you know, sort of this good old boy network. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can definitely speak to that. Um, it's definitely a, a good old boy system over here. And the good old boy system is, you know, really at best, it, it plays out well over here on the Eastern shore. Uh, because, you know, the Eastern Shore is not, it uh, flies under the radar a lot of times from, you know, the main media outlets. Um, and it allows for uh, ambiguity to take place and things of that nature. You know, Webster was a part of the Dover Police Department. Mike Pettio was a member of, was a part of Camden, Delaware. Camden and Dover are right next to each other. So they knew one another, um, or at least had a knowledge of one another. So when Webster's situation happened in Dover, Delaware, again, Mike Pettio was like, okay, I don't know you or I may know you, but come on over. And that's exactly what happened. So a lot of times that good old boy system operates where these officers are hiring friends of friends or you know, directly friends that they're hiring um, and they get away with this, with this type of stuff. I truly believe if it was not for the coalition forming and stepping up, that this case may have, would have flown under the radar as well. And it would have been dismissed and Anton's would have been just this 19 year old kid who had a run in with the police officers. It didn't go well. And that was it. Um, I really believe that that was the way this was shaping. Uh, from what I was reading in the newspapers and things of that nature, that the good old boy story was the story that was going to be told and was going to be played out. And that was going to be it until we started to demand more of a response and putting out the right side of the story. I would just add that, um, especially for people that um, aren't, are listening who aren't on the Eastern Shore, um, these departments are all, you know, small town departments where almost all of the law enforcement officers and officials are white. It is, it is extremely rare that these departments have, have black officers. Um, many of the officers in the different departments know each other from social clubs, volunteer activities like volunteer fire companies, which are part of the white dominated social structure on the Eastern shore. The departments work together through a collaboration agreement. So when something happens in one jurisdiction, officers in the other areas are, are empowered to, to become involved as happened here with the officers from several different towns. Um, and the dispatch service coordinates all these departments in the area. So the officers hear calls and are alerted um, to things that are happening and, and encouraged to, to join in. So they, they do interact 
a lot, even though they might be from different different um, jurisdictions and um, and you know the the pervasiveness the the pervasive whiteness of the departments is a factor in the way policing occurs on the eastern shore. So as, as I'm sure you both y'all know, it is Black History Month this month. Um, but I also wanted to talk, I wanted to, to highlight, because um, I think a lot of a lot of attention has been put on, rightly so, like the attention of Black people unfortunately dying um, and being killed by police officers. But I did want like to see if both of y'all could could just touch on the advocacy and the uh, the organizing power um, and the collective power that the, that you've seen from Black people and Black organizations to demand change, either recently or over history as well, uh, particularly when it comes to police reform. So I, you know, I, I think now it, it 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 has become more prevalent, and I think that has transpired because of the death of George Floyd and COVID created that opportunity. You had Americans at home. Um, so the TVs were on, people were working. And then to see how George Floyd lost his, was murdered, um, it, it struck to the heart of humanity. Uh, so I think, you know, not only is it the black groups that are advocating, you now have more white allies in this fight with you. And I think that's critical. Um, you know, a lot of times on the Eastern Shore, we fail to address certain situations because it's the Black people's issue or the Black people's problem. But what I'm finding out is that now, since we have these white allies who are saying, no, this isn't right, now we're, we're starting to get some movement here. And, and you can see that throughout. You can see that throughout local issues on police reform and police accountability. You can see it at the state level and you can even see it, see it at the federal level. So I think it, you know, though we as black people and black organizations are leading the front right now, we can't do it all without our white allies. So I think that's the, the pivotal point in which we're now seeing is that you have white allies who are joining in this fight, they're vocal about it and they wanna see change as well. And I would just echo that. Yeah, you know, I think we. I think the Black-led movement that has um, that has come about um, recently, but over has been building over over time, um, has reached an extraordinarily powerful moment. And um, and here in Maryland, um, you know, we're uh, advocating for enormous change. Um, in the way policing um, is conducted in the state. And I think that is a product of, of the moment, but um, you know, the, the black led coalition that is um, advocating, you know, well, as Richard says, like, you know, at all levels, but in the Maryland legislature right now is, um, sort of on the cusp of, of achieving real change. And I do believe that, um, that the moment that we are in right now is, is an extraordinary one. Agreed. I'm, I'm hopeful in a, in a year or two, we can come back and, um, and give an update on the case and, and hopefully talk about some of the changes that we have seen um, that really will help to save 
it saved lives, um, honestly, um, here in Maryland, on the Eastern Shore, and across the country. So thank you um, all for being here today. I know this was a you know, difficult conversation um, to have, but it was an important one that gave a lot of context to the fight for police reform in Maryland. So thank you, uh, Debbie, Richard, and Mr. Black for being a part of this today. Thank you, Amber. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thinking Freely. If you like Thinking Freely, please be sure to leave a review and subscribe to us from wherever you get your podcasts. Currently in the Maryland General Assembly, there's a bill called Anton's Law that would create transparency in how officers investigate police misconduct and police abuse cases. If you would like to support this or any other issues related to police reform, Visit aclu-md.org backslash reimagine policing or click the link in the description to take action. This podcast was recorded on Piscataway Native American land. Happy Black History Month. I'm Amber Taylor, the host and producer of Thinking Freely. Till next time. <laughs>